Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Well, good morning. Glad to see everyone. If you have your Bibles, you can be opening to John chapter 2. We're going to spend our time there this morning. Grateful that you are here. Excited to have you here in person or whether you're watching online. We're just grateful that you joined us. Uh, It is just a privilege to get to come together into the house of the Lord. And today we're going to be talking about Jesus' cleansing of the temple from John chapter 2 verses 13 to 22. It was around 19 or 20 BC when Herod the Great, who we've already talked about in the course of this series of lessons, began a massive rebuilding program at the temple in Jerusalem. And what Herod intended was for this temple that he was rebuilding to rival the temple that Solomon had built all the way back in the Old Testament. And I read something interesting this week about the builders of that temple. In order to assure purity, Thousands of priests were actually trained as stone cutters and architects because normal people just couldn't work on this temple. Uh, in fact, uh, they had to be set apart for the job, and a total of 18,000 men worked full-time until this temple was finished in A.D. 64. And what's so sad is it was finished in A.D. 64, and six years later, it's destroyed again by Rome. Some of the stones in this temple weighed as much as 70 tons. And when Jesus enters the scene, this building project has been going on for approximately 46 years. Now, here's what you need to know about the temple. The temple was the beating heart of Judaism. It was the beating heart of Judaism. It wasn't just another church on a street corner. No, not at all. Uh, The temple was the center of worship. It was the center of music. It was the center of politics and society. It was the center of national celebration and national mourning. But most of all, above all, it was the place where Israel's God had promised to dwell in the midst of his people. It was the place where God's presence was. And this is where this, at least at this point, un, relatively unknown prophet from Galilee comes and literally turns everything upside down. Let's take a look. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. 
I think for those of us who have walked with Jesus for quite some time, I think we can forget how absolutely shocking this must have been. One of the things I wanted to do, or I was thinking about doing, I was going to put some tables up here with a whole bunch of coins on them. I was just going to flip them over uh, just so you could get a, a, maybe a little bit of a taste of what was going on. And I thought about maybe weaving together some ropes and just kind of slapping that thing just so, so you could try to get a picture. Uh, but I'm not very good at those things, and so I didn't do that. Uh, but I think we forget how shocking it must have been there, uh, must have been to be there on that day. Can you imagine can you imagine what that must have looked like? Now, there are some questions that come into my mind when I read this in John chapter 2, 3 to be exact, and we're going to do our best to answer these three questions as a part of this lesson. But here's question number one. What was wrong with the temple? Uh, what was wrong with the temple? As I read this, that's a question that comes to my mind. What was wrong with the temple? And not only that, number two, why did Jesus do what he did? Why did Jesus do it? And finally, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the end of this as these religious leaders come to Jesus and they have this exchange. And so my third question is, what does Jesus' answer mean when they ask him for a sign? So let's take these questions in order. First, what was wrong with the temple? Well, I don't think there's any doubt at all as to what John thinks it means. Remember that it's Passover time, and he has already declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is God's Passover Lamb. And so now, Jesus goes to Jerusalem at the time of liberation and freedom and rescue from slavery are being celebrated in Jerusalem because John wants us to understand that Jesus did what Jesus did in the temple is a hint at the new meaning that he's going to give to Passover as his life comes to a close. But it's also a strong hint as to what Jesus thinks of the temple himself. So what was wrong with the temple? Jesus clearly regards it as corrupt, and he clearly regards the temple as under God's judgment. The trade, the marketplace atmosphere, this is not what the temple was supposed to be about. If you had the opportunity to listen to our five-minute Friday video that we send out every Friday, uh, then you know a little bit more detail about what was going on in these temple courts during this time. And all of this activity that was happening took place in a very specific spot in the temple. It was a place known as the Court of the Gentiles. Now, what was the court of the Gentiles? The court of the Gentiles was the only place in the entire temple where non-Jews could come and seek the living God. So I want you to try to put yourself, because guess what? We're all Gentiles. So let's try to put ourselves there uh, and think what it must have been like to have walked into the court of the Gentiles on that day. If the outer court is filled with oxen and lambs and doves, then there is absolutely zero place for someone seeking God who's not Jewish to pray and worship, is there? Can you imagine trying to pray in the midst of a virtual stockyard with all the noises of animals and bickering businessmen? Can you conceive of trying to squeeze in between cattle who are tied up in the courts? Think of what it must have been like to have to watch where you walk lest you step in something undesirable. And it appears that Gentile worship at this point is functionally prohibited. And here's an even greater problem. The Jews didn't care. 
They didn't care because they didn't want the Gentiles in there in the first place. They hated this part of the law that said you're supposed to be a blessing to all nations. They didn't want the Gentiles in there, so it was easy for them, out of their convenience, to come and set up shop in a place where they didn't want the people who were coming anyway. That's what's going on as Jesus is looking out over this. When Jesus sees what's going on, he's, he is troubled a great, great deal. The place of prayer. The place of prayer had become a place of profit-taking. It sounds more like the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange than the outer courts of the temple of God. It smells more like a barnyard than the place where people can seek God's presence. And so Jesus enters into this scene. He fashions a whip from the materials that were there because it was illegal to bring weapons into this area. And he drives them all out of the temple. And by the word all, I, I understand that to mean he drove not only the animals, but everyone who were selling those animals as well. Coins are everywhere. They're poured out on the ground, scattered, tables overturned. And to those selling the turtle doves, he says, take these things away. This is a house of prayer. This is, this is my father's house, and you have turned it into a marketplace. There was a time when these animals and all of this activity was done outside of the temple. But now, it's all been moved inside of the temple for convenience sake. For the Jews, no outside animal would be accepted. You couldn't bring your own. You had to buy from within the system. And often, uh, that would come at massively inflated prices. And if you were a foreigner, you had to have your money exchanged at great expense. It was a mess. And Jesus says, no more. So why? Why did Jesus do what he do? Uh, did? Uh, why did Jesus do what he do? Uh, why did Jesus do what he did? I, I think that uh, to answer that question, we need to look at that verse in chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 17 that says, zeal for your house has eaten me up, right? His actions cause his followers to remember something that was written in the Psalms. It, it's Psalm 69 and verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now, I want you to notice that word consume. Maybe your version says zeal has eaten me up. I, I don't know what version you're reading, uh, but, but I want to suggest to you that, that this is more. Jesus has more than just a passion for the temple. When he says, zeal has consumed me, he's not just saying that Jesus was very passionate about the temple. This is a messianic psalm, and it's a cry of pain, and it's a cry of desperation. And like David, Jesus' passion for God is going to get him in trouble. Here's what the verse is actually saying. Jesus' passion for God is going to kill him. It's going to get him killed. And we know that's exactly what happens. And so all the way back here in John chapter 2, we begin to get a foretaste of what's going to happen as this book comes to a conclusion. I find the words of the Jews that approach Jesus after this moment most interesting. Let's look at that third question. I find the question that they ask in that interchange so interesting because they do not argue with Jesus about the evils of making the temple courts a marketplace. In fact, I would suspect that the Pharisees actually agree with Jesus uh, that, that this was not the way it should be done. The issue is not what has been done. The issue for them is who has done it. 
They raise the issue of Jesus' identity and Jesus' authority, which is not altogether hard to understand, is it? Let me try to illustrate it this way. Let's say that you ran a stop sign and you were pulled over by a police officer. Well, if you're smart, you would politely listen to the officer, admit you're wrong, take the ticket, and pay it. But what would happen if you ran a stop sign and were pulled over by an irate citizen? My guess is you would be a whole lot less inclined to listen politely, wouldn't you? Even if you were in the wrong, you would likely protest, who do you think you are pulling me over to lecture me about my driving, right? If some citizen pulled us over, it doesn't have the same effect. And in one sense, the Jews do not view our Lord's action as a sign. They do, I mean. They do view it as a sign. For someone to cleanse the temple and correct wrongdoing implies that they have the authority to do so. And so their point is, all right, Jesus, if you're acting as God's agent, if you're acting on God's behalf, then establish your credentials by, by, by showing us some divine power. If you're acting with God's authority, you perform a sign to prove it. They, they, they have thrown down the gauntlet here. And it's Jesus' turn to respond. Jesus does not give them a sign. He doesn't even refer to any of the signs that he seems to have already performed up to this point in his ministry. Because he's not about to jump through their hoops. He doesn't even try to convince them who he is. Instead, he speaks to them of the ultimate sign, his death, burial, and resurrection. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. You see, they assume that Jesus is referring to Herod's temple, that temple, as we said at the beginning, that has been under construction for 46 years. Does Jesus really think he can build a temple in three days that has been under construction for 46 years and still isn't finished yet? John tells his readers what we already know. Jesus is not speaking of an earthly temple. He knows that it too will soon be destroyed. He is speaking of himself as the temple of God. And he is speaking of his coming crucifixion. And so Jesus, this is, this is what I need you to get in all of this. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the word made flesh. Jesus is the place where God's glory has chosen to make his dwelling. Jesus is the reality to which the temple itself pointed. And his death and resurrection will be the reality to which this whole Passover, which everyone was there to celebrate in the first place, actually points. Okay. So what's this have to do with us? What are we supposed to do with this? I think that's an important question for us to wrestle with. What, what are we supposed to do with this account? Is it, just, is it just good for us to see Jesus' passion here and to, and to kind of think, okay, great, he's going to raise from the dead? What is the point for us? And I want to I try to get to some things that I think can help us by asking two questions. And here's the first question. I want to ask this. Is this church a house of prayer? I mean, really, that was what angered Jesus, right? They had made his house a marketplace rather than a place for prayer and worship and the seeking of God. And so I want to ask the question, is this church a house 
of prayer. And I want to challenge everyone here to make this house a house of prayer. Listen, we do a lot of things well here at Beltline. We have some really, really good ministry. We have some great programs that help people. We're really good at fellowship meals when we could do them. I look forward to the day when we can do those again. We, we do very well, I think, on Sundays. We're good at some things. But I want to suggest to you today that if we're going to be good at anything, let's be good at prayer. Let's be good at prayer. And so let me ask you, how often do we get together just to pray? Let me ask it this way. If we organized a gathering to get together just to pray, how many of you would actually come? How many of you would show up? The scriptures make some amazing promises connected to prayer. Can I share some of those with you? Psalm 107, verse 28. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Did you hear that? They cried out to the Lord. He delivered them. Mark 11, 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have for anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. These are promises of God, right? John chapter 14, verse 12. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without a reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the waves. How about James 5.16? The fervent prayer of righteous people avails much. Or how about 1 John 5, verse 14? This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. These are promises of God. And these scriptures are not just for the apostles and the people that lived back then. These are promises for us today. They're promises for us. John 14 says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. I have a long way to go in my own prayer life. So I'm not standing up here on some pedestal saying this is what it's supposed to look like because I, I got a long way to go. But I can no longer pass on what Jesus says about prayer. Maybe it's time for all of us to start growing our prayer muscles. Prayer must become central here at Beltline. It can't be an afterthought. It can't be something we do when we run out of options. Prayer must become central here in this place. You say, well, what does that look like? Can I offer you some suggestions of what it might look like? 
If prayer is to become central, let me tell you what I think it should look like. I want to suggest to you that if prayer is going to become central here, that it should be natural in this church to see people in the halls or standing over to the side praying with and for each other. And if we don't see this happening, then something's probably missing. I want to suggest to you that when people have conflict with each other, the first thing that should happen is that they should pray together. This means husbands and wives and children and parents and whoever. And if that's not happening, something's probably missing. I want to suggest to you that when someone asks you to pray for them, you should pray, not just tell them you are going to pray. And if that's not happening, something's probably missing. I want to suggest to you that it should be comfortable for you and two or three other people to meet regularly just to pray. And if it's not comfortable, something is definitely missing. I want to suggest to you that the laying on of hands, one of six fundamentals of the faith we read about in Hebrews 6, ought to be part of the life of this church. And if that's not happening, we're neglecting something. I want to suggest to you that it should be common at Beltline to hear stories of answered prayers, stories of great things still happening, stories of changed lives that come through prayer. And if that's not com common, then something is missing. I want to suggest to you that you should see people among us doing radical things in this church because they heard the calling of God through prayer and if we're not seeing those things, something is definitely missing. I want to suggest to you that if our church is not actively out in our community praying over its concerns, something is desperately missing. I want to suggest to you that we should have regular training events for prayer and that you should expect people to intercede for each other in prayer. And if those things aren't happening, then something is missing. And I want to suggest to you that our prayers have to go beyond simply praying for the sick and must include praying for the lost. And if we're not doing that, something is definitely missing. And I want to suggest to you that our ministry should be built around prayer. When we serve people, we ought to do it through prayer. And if we're not doing that, something is missing. Prayer must become central at this church. If we're going to be good at something, let's be good at that. Let's be better at that than anything else that's out there. David Young in his book, New Day, tells a made-up story that I'm going to change a little bit to fit our purposes. But this has just been stuck in my head, and I can't get it out, so I want to share it with you. In a dream, he says, he was allowed to wander the heavenly mansions. I saw the kitchen, the living area, and the bathrooms, and I quickly found the library, one of my favorite rooms, and as I browsed through the books on the library, I came across a huge encyclopedia-sized book entitled, A History of the Beltline Church of Christ. Now I was intrigued. And so I opened it. And I read of all kinds of wonders and powers, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ, thousands of churches planted throughout the country and beyond, great revivals breaking out all around us, outrageous acts of repentance and boldness in standing for the gospel, for compassion, for mercies and ministries that change the world. I put the volume down. 
And then I meekly suggested to God who was there with me that it was well written, but that I was actually out Beltline during that time and those things didn't actually happen. And so God reached into a file cabinet and he pulled out a worn out manila folder with a few yellow sheets of paper scribbled on them. And then pointing back to the thick volume, he said, son, what you read is the book of things I would have given you if you had prayed for them. And then handing me the manila folder, he explained, this is all you asked for, so this is all you got. God's house should be a house of prayer. Stop trusting in your own power and start today to lean into his. Is this church a house of prayer? Question number two. This is a big one. Are we putting up obstacles to people coming to Jesus? I mean, that's what they were doing in John 2, right? Out of their convenience, they had made it impossible for people to seek the living God. Are we? Are we putting up obstacles to people coming to Jesus? And Jesus is enraged when he sees this because what was happening in the temple was that barrier between God and others. And so I think this is a crucial question for us to ask ourselves individually and also to ask ourselves collectively as a church. Are we putting up obstacles to people coming to Jesus? Are there barriers that you and I have constructed? Is there anything keeping either ourselves or others from connection to the Lord? That's a huge question. And let me just say this. We create those obstacles when our words and our actions don't match. I'm not saying we're going to do that perfectly. But you know what I mean when I say when our words and our actions don't match, right? When we say we follow Christ and live like the world, we set up obstacles to people who are searching for authentic faith. When we seek revenge and retaliation for our wrongs, we create obstacles to those who are seeking. When we can't get along with each other and bite and devour one another, we create obstacles to those who are seeking. I could go on, but you get the point, don't you? Sometimes how we look, how we act, how we communicate, uh, all of those things are creating obstacles and barriers to people who are searching for something more and they think, maybe I can find it here. Can they? Can they? Is it possible that we have allowed our faith to be nothing more than a shortcut? Uh, we've allowed our faith to be nothing more than going through the motions of attendance at a church service while all the while withholding our allegiance to one another and to the love of Jesus Christ. There is no acceptable relationship with God without a loving relationship with his people. Let me just say that first and foremost. 1 John 4 says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He says, how can you love your brother who you can see? How can you hate your brother who you can see? 
He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Let me make that right. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. 1 Corinthians 6 makes it clear that you and I are walking temples of God. Did you know that? We are walking temples of God. We are portable temples that are being used as salt and light to a world that sits in darkness and decay. And my plea for you this morning is don't allow anything to keep you from displaying the glory of God and allowing others to connect with him. Focus your life on the cross. And if you have to, then do what Jesus did and turn some tables over in your own life. Whip some things out of your own life. Cleanse your life of those things that distract. Cleanse your life of those things that corrupt your devotion to him. Two questions we have to wrestle with. Is this church a house of prayer? Are we creating obstacles to people who are seeking the Lord? And remember, the church is not these four walls. The church is you. Are you a house of prayer? Are you creating obstacles to those who would come to Jesus? Wrestle with those questions this week. And if you don't like the answer, turn some tables over. Turn some tables over in your life. If you need prayer, if you want to turn some tables right now, come on. We're here. We're ready to pray for you. We're ready to receive you. We're ready to help you. Whatever we can do, whatever your need may be, we invite you to come. Thanks again for listening. If you are in North Alabama, we would love to have you visit and worship with us. Also, if this lesson blessed you today, don't forget to hit the share button and share this message with someone else. Hope you will join us again next week. As we close, here is our prayer for you. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great week. 